Good evening. My name is Aaron Cook. For those of you who don't know me, I'm a uh, member here at the Church of the Incarnation. And so happy that you all joined us tonight. So what would you do if you were God? How would you run things? What would you do if you were given God's power? What would you do? What would you fix? What would you make right? Who would you destroy? <laughs> About a dozen years or so ago, there was a movie out called Bruce Almighty. I don't know if any of you saw it. I think it's a pretty cool movie. It's about this guy named Bruce who starts out the movie really upset with God. God's just messing up his life and not doing anything for him. And he gets really angry with God, played by Jim Carrey. Um, God, in the form of Morgan Freeman, summons his Jim Carrey, Bruce, and gives Bruce all of his power and goes on vacation. Throughout the rest of the movie, Bruce has God's power. You see the movie? How does he use it? He uses it for himself. Tries to manipulate his girlfriend. Uh, tries to sabotage his co-worker, Evan, in one of the funniest scenes of all time. If you've ever seen, seen the movie. Um, and he ends up making an even bigger mess of his life. Tonight is Maundy Thursday. The night we remember the Last Supper. This is the Passover meal that Jesus ate with his disciples on the road to the cross. And he's almost there. Now we remember this meal every Sunday, don't we? When we come to the table and we take the bread and the wine. But tonight we're going to remember uh, or focus on a part of that meal that we don't talk about very much. And, uh, and that's what Maundy Thursday is about. Now we know from the other Gospels that Jesus sent Peter and John ahead of the rest of the group to prepare the Passover meal. Mark tells us that he told them, Go into Jerusalem, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room? Where, am I eat, where may I eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There prepare for us. So Peter and John did that. They went and they had to find a lamb, kill a lamb, prepare a lamb, bake some bread, go to the wine shop, get some wine. It's probably in a, in a fairly large room with a pretty large table. They would sit around the table. The, the host, the most important person present at this meal would have been Christ. Their leader uh, would seat, sit at the head of the table. And they would probably be seated in order of importance. Um, it's, not, it's not like in the pictures where they're always on one side of the table. I never understood that. Um, in Exodus 12, we read the story of the, the Jewish people, Israel, at the time they were taken out of Egypt. They'd been slaves in Egypt. And uh, there's a big story called the Passover where, where God took his people out of Egypt. And in, in their leaving he commanded them to prepare a lamb a certain way, bake unleavened bread, and eat bitter herbs. God told Moses, this day shall be a memorial for you. You shall keep it as a feast for the Lord. Throughout your generations as a statute forever, and you shall keep it as a feast. So for the Jews, this was an annual ritual meal, a little bit like our communion, but bigger portions, that, that the Jews had observed for 1,400, 1,500 years. 
And Jesus, being a faithful Jew, um, was observing this with his disciples. So there's this moment at the meal where Jesus breaks the ritual and he tells his disciples, this is my body. This is my blood. It's that moment that we remember every week at Eucharist. What do you think the disciples did in response to that? Somebody break out in song. Somebody pray a a well-prepared prayer. Somebody break out a board game. No. Luke tells us that immediately after this, an argument arose among them. Which one of them will be regarded as the greatest? I mean, that just totally crashes the whole scene, doesn't it? Here they are, worried about their status, their honor, their influence, their power. Jesus says in this passage in John 13, they didn't understand. And if you read John, that motif comes up quite a bit. Where John comments, provides commentary saying, the disciples didn't understand this till later. So in Luke, Jesus responds to the argument. He says, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. I suspect at this moment the disciples looked at him. That didn't make sense. They were all wanting to be the greatest. And Jesus is calling them to be the one who serves. So it's probably a little lull in the conversation. And I can imagine that it slowly picks up again as they start arguing again. Jesus knows us. Jesus knows his disciples. He knows that sometimes we don't need reason. We don't need systematic theology. Jesus sometimes just needs to act out a story, participate in a ritual in order to sink it into our bones and our hearts. So Jesus stood up, probably with another, without another word. It says he laid aside his outer garment, took up a towel, tied it around his waist, poured water into a basin, and washed his disciples' feet. Now, in this culture, in, in this time, people walked long distances on dusty roads and they wore sandals. It was customary of gathering like this for the host to provide water, probably upon arrival, for foot washing. Usually it was done by a servant, not a Jewish servant, but a Gentile servant. It was usually not done by anybody participating in the meal, certainly not done by the host. Well, apparently there were no slaves at this meal, just Jesus and his disciples, and no one at the party volunteered to do the foot washing. Peter and John didn't even put a bucket out by the door so you could help yourself, right? They'd come in, reclined at the table, dirty feet. It was a guy's night out. It's kind of like what my kids like to call a daddy meal. There's no vegetables, no manners. No one has to wash your hands before the meal. There's nobody there to tell them to do it. And apparently at this meal, nobody worried about the foot washing part. Skip that part. So... Have any of y'all ever been to Monticello? It's a great place. If you haven't been there, go. Monticello is this wonderful house that Thomas Jefferson built. And if you know much about him and know much about the house, he spent a lot of time building it. And everything there has a purpose. Um, So uh, 
Oh, there's this labyrinth of hallways that are out of sight. So the servants could go from place to place and do what they needed to do. And you wouldn't, you wouldn't see them at all. Um, if you ever get a chance to go upstairs, it's not open to the public, but there's this great room, it's under the dome, where you walk in the room and all of the windows are at floor level or lower. So you go in the room, it's a pretty high ceiling, but the, the top of the window is about three feet and it goes to the floor. And you think, who designed this? That's, that's just weird. As it turns out, he never planned on going upstairs and he wanted it to look right from the outside. So he put his windows where they looked best on the outside, which is just horrible for the aesthetics of the room. There's another feature in the house that he called an air closet. An air closet is a place or a couple places in the house where there was a privy and it was a very small privy and in the privy was a chamber pot, right? Male slaves could earn an extra dollar a month if they would volunteer to go remove the chamber pot every day. That was their job. I'm not off topic. Here we go. <laughs> Removing the chamber pots is menial slave work, right? That's why Peter responded, you shall never wash my feet. It's like if George Washington took out and emptied Thomas Jefferson's chamber pot. I'm trying to think of a good parallel. That, was, that wasn't a good one. Um, a good parallel for us today in Harrisonburg. We have so many conveniences uh, that, that kind of get rid of the need for manual labor, menial labor. Uh, we have socks and shoes, right? Um, so how about this? If, if you were my home, you were my guest, and... Uh, we finish the meal, and I just sit there while you get up and start washing my dishes or cleaning my toilet. You shall never clean my toilet. <laughs> How did Jesus respond? He said, if I do not wash you, then you have no share with me. It reminds me a little bit of the passage we saw a couple weeks ago in, re- in relation to Jesus' mother and brothers. When Jesus said, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother. And my brothers, we must submit to Jesus, allow him to wash us, to lead us, to serve us in order to follow him, join his kingdom. Verse 12 says, when he finished, he put his clothes back on and he resumed his place. But I think the most fascinating part of the story and the part I want to kind of come back to is in verse 3. Jesus says, then Jesus, knowing that God had given all things into his hands, the message says it this way. Jesus knew that the Father had put him in complete charge of everything. Here's Jesus. He's God. He has all power. He has all authority. He is in complete charge of everything. So what does he do? It's been said that God created man in his own image, and we've been returning the favor ever since. Whenever whenever man creates gods... They're powerful, right? Think of the Greek gods. Think of um, the Norse gods, different gods throughout history. When we think about God, a lot of times we think about his power, his omnipotence. We're impressed by his omnipotence, his ability to heal, to calm a storm, to raise the dead. We worship God because he's powerful. But what if that's just because our vision of God 
is a projection of what we would do if we were God. Maybe God's greatness doesn't come from his omnipotence. Maybe God's greatness is his love. We're like Elijah, looking for God in spectacular things. The earthquake, the fire, the wind that breaks rocks. This passage is about power in the kingdom of God. Leadership and authority in the kingdom of God. Leadership, authority, power in the kingdom of God is never exercising power over people. It's never exercising power over people. It's coming under people, serving people, loving people. Several several years ago, a friend of mine here in Harrisonburg uh, ran a business. It's not a good business. It was not a business that um, was good for the city, that, that, that contributed to the flourishing of the city. A group of Christians um, got together and tried to enact an ordinance to run this business out of town. Like I said, it wasn't a good business. I understand why they did it. They tried to force him out of business. But from his perspective, that didn't feel like Jesus. At the time, I was wishing that a group of Christians would sacrificially pull their money together, buy the business, love him, serve him, show him Jesus. All right, the question I started with, what would you do if you had God's power? What does God do? He becomes like a Gentile slave. He becomes like a little child. He looks like a person who is hungry, thirsty, sick, a stranger, naked, in prison. This is not a picture. This is not just a symbol. This is where we absolutely need to change our thinking. As we've been going through Mark, Aubrey's been preaching that suffering is how the kingdom of God manifests itself. Humble service. Not the triumphal victory over people, but by coming under people and serving them in humility and love. Kelly read us a passage we're very familiar with. And I know what you all thought when she was reading it. You thought it was a wedding, right? Because that's pretty much the only time we hear that passage. But that's not what that passage is about at all. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clangy cymbal. The spectacular. We're always looking for the spectacular. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, I mean, that's power, right? But I have not love. I am nothing. This is a passage of what it looks like to exercise power in the kingdom of God. Dan at the retreat talked about uh, the upside-down world where the way up is the way down. I'd like to read a passage real quick from a new book by N.T. Wright. We know what the power of the world looks like. When push comes to shove, as it often does, it is the power of violence using the threat of pain and death. It is, yes, the power of tanks and bombs and also of guns and knives and whips and prisons and barbed wire and bulldozers. Weapons to destroy people's lives, machines to destroy their homes, cruelty in the home or at work, malice and manipulation, where there should be great gentleness, kindness, and wisdom. Jesus' power is a totally different sort. As he explained to the Roman governor a few minutes before the governor sent him to his death, 
thereby proving his point. The kingdom of the world runs on violence. The kingdom of God, Jesus declared, runs on love. That is the good news. It's strange though, isn't it? That's so foreign to us. Even in the church, even in a country that's been saturated with Christianity, it's counterintuitive. We still haven't absorbed it. We haven't bought it. We still like to live our lives in a way that, I'm sorry, we still live our lives like the way to engage others, to engage culture, is to exercise power over people. Stop. Repent. Change your mind. The way of the cross, the way of the towel and the basin, is the way we must engage our families, our vocations, our friends, our enemies, our community, our culture, and the world. So tonight we join the church in this ancient rite. Feet are ugly, basic, down to earth, literally. Washing them is mundane. I mean, you do it all the time and you hardly think about it. Feels as, uh, washing feet sometimes feels as futile as washing the tires on your car. They're going to get dirty again. And if you wash somebody else's feet, it's close and personal and intimate and uncomfortable. You might be like me, tempted to skip the service tonight, uh, which is, I think, why Aubrey asked me to, to preach. <laughs> now, in, in, in a lot of Anglican churches, the way it's set up is that the priest, uh, 12 people come forward and the priest washes their feet. And you can see why that is, because this passage is about leadership and authority and power. In our, in our church and in, in, in the tradition we're in, um, we all wash one another's feet. And we all exercise power, real power, relational power. Um, in our little kingdoms, our homes, our, our uh, workplaces, uh, over our children, our employees, our roommates. What would it look like if we loved and humbly served those around us rather than impose our wills upon them? Last week, Carl Medeiros spoke down the street at First Presbyterian Church uh, Men's Breakfast. He's an author and a missionary in the Middle East. In 2012, he was invited to present a paper at an annual meeting of the Arab League, a meeting of Arabs to discuss the uh, Palestinian-Israeli issue. Now, Carl's a Christian, so it's still not clear to me how he got invited to even be present, let alone speak. But he did, and he wrote a paper called The Answer to Injustice According to Jesus of Nazareth, and he presented it. He stood before a room full of Arab leaders, Palestinian leaders, ambassadors, heads of state, most if not all of them Muslim. And he declared to them that Jesus called on them to love their enemies, Israel. Bless those who curse you, Israel. Don't return evil for evil. Give to them without expecting in return. Carl told them that Jesus' call to them was to forgive Israel. He closed by saying this. The Palestinians politically have the right to use force. But unfortunately, the Israelis also feel like they have the right to use force. Who will break this never-ending cycle of injustice and killing? The Palestinians would win in the end if they chose the way of Jesus. And at the very least, their hearts would be free. What is true for the Palestinians and the Israelis is just as true for us. God's answer to question if you were God, what would you do? It's the self-sacrifice of the cross. 
It's the self-sacrifice of the basin and the towel. That's what God would do if he were God. And he is. And he did. Now, if you missed everything else, listen to this. Here's the beauty of it. You can too. We can too. We can participate in God's work. We don't have to be omnipotent. We don't have to be really oppressive. We don't have to be all-powerful. You just have to be able to love and serve. To be able to exercise power under people. Every day. At home, at work, at school. And we have the opportunity to start right here. Right now. As we feast together. And as we wash one another's feet.